as I built my career and advanced, you know, in these different operations and had more power and more control and was able to dictate some of these things, I've always wanted to create an environment where people are happy to show up. Happy people grow happy plants and happy plants make the people working with them happy. So it's like a cyclical thing. You're listening to Cultivation Elevated, hosted by Michael Williamson, where we discuss vertical farming and the future of cannabis and food production. You'll be learning key insights for vertical farming success from leading industry operators, growers, and executives. If you're a grower or owner looking to optimize your existing or new indoor cultivation facility, or anyone looking to cultivate more in less space, we've got you covered. Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cultivation Elevated, sponsored by Pip Horticulture. I'm your host, Michael Williamson, and I'm here today on site in Desert Hot Springs, California at Dr. Rob's Farms with Zach Newman, Director of Operations. Zach, I really appreciate you taking time for me today. Yeah, likewise. Thanks for coming down. Well, let's get into it a bit. We took a nice tour this morning and um, I was pleasantly surprised. I, I knew that I was coming to a greenhouse, but I didn't realize that this is not your, your typical greenhouse. Can right. you maybe paint a little verbal picture for the people that are listening about your infrastructure and some of the key and novel traits about it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we have the bulk of the non-flowering operations in uh, an enclosed headhouse, and that includes our uh, veg, veg room, veg phase. So that environment's very easily controlled, um, pretty standard indoor environments. And then uh, we have a mixed light greenhouse uh, with a lot of dedicated AC because we you know, are growing in such a harsh environment out here. Yeah, for people who aren't familiar with the um, Palm Springs, Desert Hot Springs area, you know, how, how hot and how, how dry can it get? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we get as low as 10% uh, humidity out here uh, in the summertime, and we'll have weeks where we hit 115 every day in that week. So obviously, cannabis does not thrive at those temperatures. Again, most of the operations around here, which is a very cannabis-friendly area, are indoor grows, traditional grows, mm -hmm. to whatever extent you want to define that as traditional. Sure. And so, you know, deciding to do it in a greenhouse manner, you know, we knew that we had to beef up certain aspects of, of the infrastructure in order to keep up with that. We have um, 22,000 square feet of canopy. It's open, continuous, perpetual harvest. So um, we have to keep that whole space uh, within those ranges that that it takes for cannabis to succeed. From week one to nine, usually, is exactly. in that range. Yeah. So your typical cannabis facility that most people will elect for, if it's indoor and even in greenhouses, usually has multiple dedicated rooms. You guys have one large space that you push everything into flower in, right. and you perpetually harvest that space. Exactly. And I remember you said you got six zones, so you're kind of two weeks on, break, and then harvest another two weeks, and then break for a week. Exactly. And that makes all of our schedules kind of, um, for every department, follow that pattern. So when we're cloning, we're cloning two weeks in a row, and then we have a week off for cleanups and transplants and things like that, resets, and then we'll go back to two weeks, and that translates all the way through harvest and sales and all that. So it makes it very predictable. And this is a purpose-built facility, so it was just a big pile of dirt before all this complex got Correct. Put in place. Yeah, we uh, were in this Cochillan Business Park. Um, it was a dedicated uh, cannabis business park campus. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, with uh, I want to say a million square feet altogether, um, and so we 
own the building. We own the, the land that the building sits on uh, and the license uh, to operate here. So um, we, we had this all you know, in mind from the get-go. It was designed you know, 2017, 2018. We went through you know, a lot of red tape in, in the building. There's a, a lot of um, pretty strict standards for building wind resistance out here is a big one. Like we have to build the walls to withstand hurricane winds um, because of the wind tunnel that we sit in here. I noticed that your sidewalls were what, lo- what looked like concrete or some kind of solid material from the outside, which is not traditionally what you see on a green Yeah, room. exactly. It, it's, uh, it's a material called uh, MGS board uh-huh. and it's extremely um, sturdy, flame resistant, you know, they like to say you can hold a blowtorch to it for three hours and it won't light up. And I don't want to test that, but I believe it. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's interesting when local municipalities or states and or both really dictate a lot of kind of the infrastructure that the cannabis or even how the cannabis is grown in some cases. Yeah. Did you guys have to do anything with sprinklering or? Yeah. The sprinklers were uh, actually one of our biggest challenges. Um, the fire marshal at the time was not super cannabis friendly. So everything had to be really dialed in. And I remember the specifics of the, the scenario at the time, but I just remember while we were building this out and waiting to get started and trying to time bring plants and staff on board that the sprinklers were like our biggest speed block, speed bump. Moving the ball down the line. Or the yeah, and they, they kept date. requesting these little tweaks that like they could have done when they were here inspecting in person, but they waited a week to submit a report, you know, like those kinds of little games. Uh, but we obviously worked through all that. And overall, um, the city of Desert Hot Springs has been a really uh, strong partner for us. Uh, the mayor's been through and toured a bunch of times. The cannabis compliance division of the police department will bring their trainees here to show them what a compliant facility looks like. So we take a lot of pride in that. Yeah. And that transparency of operations. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, you know, we operate above board. We don't want to do anything that's going to threaten our operations or people's jobs or anything like that. So it's all, you know, it's all pretty above board. We both did some operations in some greenhouses uh, around the same time in the uh, Salinas Valley area. And I recall when we were doing one of our new, one of our new greenhouses, the California Code Check, CCC, they said that our greenhouses had to be solar ready, meaning that we had to be able to put solar panels on the roof of the greenhouse. And, you know, we went through about, I think a three month delay, just getting them to understand that (laughs) it is solar ready. It is as it's, it is as solar ready as it can be. That is our goal here. And that, you know, that solar panels would be blocking the sun that we're trying to utilize. So I definitely feel your pain a little bit there. Let's back up a little bit. Sure. Tell me more about Dr. Rob and kind of how all this came to be. Yeah, absolutely. So Dr. Rob has a very compelling story in and of itself. He studied at UC Davis, uh, specifically in hydroponic uh, agriculture, indoor, indoor farming, essentially. And he was working in a dispensary in San Francisco where we met. And after, you know, we kind of worked through there for a few years and kind of went separate ways. And he was kind of figuring out his next steps. And uh, his mom was going through breast cancer, which she survived. And just to get that part out front. Sure. But, uh, you know, he was, he was looking, she asked him for help and he was like, well, you know, I can tell you to go get this off the street or this product, but I want to be able to provide a safe and reliable product for my loved ones and other people's loved ones in the same situation. So that's when he decided to fund or, uh, found Dr. Rob Farms. 
And uh, they developed a CBD product. Uh, there was like a daily pill called Mom's Formula. Um, but you could take it in greater quantities for, you know, pain relief and things like that. It's miracle hangover cure I found, <laughs> you know, through my own studies. <clears throat> and then they, you know, decided from there to go back into farming and, and growing. And I was a free agent at the time. They were looking to build out these facilities down here. And so he gave me a ring and, you know, we've been wanting to work together for a long time since we had, had parted ways and, uh, it just ended up being a really good opportunity for both of us. Nice. And what about you? Tell me, tell me your story in this space. Where, where did it all begin? Where did your love affair with cannabis? I started as a teenager, you know, someone at summer camp handed me something and I saved it and brought it back home to my friends. And it was the first time any of us had like seen weed in person and and where are you living at this time? Uh, San Francisco, California. So born and raised. And, uh, and how, how old are you? 14. Okay. That, that, that's the magic number <laughs> most people say. Exactly. So I was kind of just at that age where, you know, getting a little more independent, starting to come out of my, my new metal Lincoln Park, Papa Roach phase and more into like classic rock, Led Zeppelin, you know, Black Sabbath stuff. And, um, you know, even like uh, my, my parents were hippies and had grown up like dropping acid and lying to their parents about taking the train to New York City to see the Grateful Dead and all that kind of stuff. So I wasn't quite on that level, but I was always curious about these things that artists consume to make this art and music that I was enjoying and all that kind of stuff. So smoked a little weed uh, in a homemade pipe out of like a highlighter pen with my friends in the backyard and had a total half-baked experience going to the grocery store like, oh, these Twizzlers are two for one, bro. Can you believe it? And, uh, you know, Went from there to like syncing up uh, Pink Floyd with Wizard of Oz and to sure. like making Gravity Bongs and then, you know, so on and so forth. And then I never really considered it as a career. You know, that was uh, early to mid 2000s um, where it was still mostly black market. And uh, I went to college to be a writer and all that kind of stuff. And I was graduated, was working retail and not writing. And I had a friend that had been a grower and was starting to, to build up a warehouse and needed someone to work full time that he was, you know, could train and, and move heavy, stinky stuff and all that kind of fun stuff. And I did not like my retail job where I was making 10 bucks an hour and he was offering me way more than that. So it was a, a no brainer for me to give up that life and, and basically get dropped into cannabis college. Um, and so we worked black market there for about a year, got ripped off a couple of times, which is when, uh, I applied for a job at a dispensary, uh, that had a, a grow associated with it where Dr. Rob was the director of operations there and he interviewed and hired me and the rest is history. The rest is history. Nice. And you guys have been together ever since. Yes, sir. What were some of your influences that kind of shaped the role that you're in today? Like, where do you draw from your leadership skills? Great question. I mean, some of those retail jobs where I had real shitty, I don't know how you feel about it. You can say <laughs> shitty. Yeah, yeah so. shitty is a word. Uh, well, yeah, some people are more sensitive <laughs> or not about that on their podcast. But so, yeah, I, I started in a, I learned a lot from my retail jobs about having shitty bosses and what it's like to, you know, have your spine stiffen when your boss walks into the room. Or, you know, I worked in like this little cubicle where, the managers would like bang on the floor if they heard us laughing too loud or they'd call down and tell us to keep it down. We weren't allowed to keep any personal items on the cork board that we were staring at eight hours a day, you know, in front of our computers, like soulless stuff. And I never, ever wanted to have a boss like that or be a boss like that. So as I 
built my career and advanced, you know, in these different operations and had more power and more control and was able to dictate some of these things. I've always wanted to create an environment where people are happy to show up, you know, happy people grow happy plants and happy plants make the people working with them happy. So it's like a cyclical thing. Um, and you know, just in general, I want people to feel safe coming to work. I don't want them to feel stressed about, is this coworker going to be harassing me today? Is this person going to make me do the, you know, the grunt work, you know, like it's all equitable. Like everyone shares different aspects and like rotations and things to make sure no one's just stuck with one crappy aspect of the job. Cause you know, a lot of it's janitorial, right? But you don't want to be the one person that's always scrubbing the tables when everyone else is hands-on plants and you never get to switch places, right? So little things like that, I think, go a long way. It's interesting how it's kind of like people that had like a, I don't know, went through divorce and had a, let's say, a, a shitty father. It's like they might not know how to be a father, but when the day comes, they know what not to do, exactly. right? So with your bosses, it was like, all right, if I just don't do this, yeah. I'm doing better. Exactly. So the, the people that originally trained me and then eventually working for Dr. Rob, he's an ex-football player, defensive end, six foot four, big dude, but he's a total sweetheart, teddy bear. And he would, uh, he would have us do like joint rolling competitions and all kinds of like taste testing homework. And, you know, a taco Tuesday, he would go down to the taqueria and buy a hundred tacos and just spoil us for no reason. And just being a positive presence and not being heavy handed, you know, no one likes being micromanaged um, while still being assertive with what he wants out of it. So lots of lessons both ways, for sure. Negative and positive. Yeah. It seems like you have a really nice culture over here. Everyone seems on task. And, you know, sometimes when you're rolling through with a camera and stuff, you know, people stop working and start asking questions, sure. but everybody was pretty much just head down, grinding. Yeah. We have a really good team. Uh, they care about it and we try and train them. A lot of things, a lot of, um, places around here that we hire from, you know, when people are looking for work, we find that like, they're just kind of put in a position or put in a, you know, here, defoliate, you know, here, trim, bag this up, but not like, well, this is why we defoliate. And this is the level we want to defoliate up to. We don't want to overdo it. We don't want to underdo it. And this is why we do it. This is what, it, how it benefits the plant. So that way, when they're doing it, they're not just mindlessly plucking leaves, but they know that there's a stopping point because that's, what's going to be best for the plant to have the highest output. So I think even those little uh, educational moments also go a long way in making people feel a certain sense of ownership with the plants they're working in. They're not just in a factory where plants are just on a conveyor belt. Um, they take pride in what they do. And, you know, we want them to have that because we want that product at the end of the day to be something that, you know, we would want to smoke ourselves, essentially. Yeah. God, you just said a lot of really great stuff right there. Let me dive in. So one of the things you said is it's not a factory, but there are factory-like elements to it. And Absolutely. because you you cross-train people, you can keep people fresh. And then the thing that pulled at my heartstrings that you said was when you're training, you're not just telling somebody what to do, but you're explaining to them the why. Exactly. Why does this matter? Why should you care? And And the how, how does this impact the next stage or the end user at the end of the day. A hundred percent. That's huge. So that, that's, this is why you have a nice culture here. Yeah. Thanks. Um, and I think, you know, that goes through all aspects like um, in curing, you know, doing that for certain amounts of time, drying certain amounts of time, not just trying to push things through. Um, that's like an area where a lot of people uh, mess up, but you can do whatever you want, beautiful practices in the greenhouse and in the, in the grow areas and have a beautiful product at harvest. But if you're not taking care of it after the fact and you're not, paying attention to those little details, uh, which is, you know, I think reminds me of the philosophy that we kind of try and 
uh, impart upon people, which is the difference between good cannabis and great cannabis is those thousand tiny details, right? There's a lot of cookie cutter, you know, there's a lot of consultants that'll say, here's your lights, here's your tables, here's your recipe, you know, set it up like this and it's good to go. But if you're not taking care of those little details, you still have a good product, still smokable, but you know, what's going to set you apart is taking care of all those little things along the way and setting up your operations and your infrastructure so that you can, you have time built in to do those cleanings in between resets and all these little things that a lot of people just skimp over because it takes too long or it's not glamorous or what have you. It's interesting because some of those details are, those tiny details are like proactive and there's a handful that are like, they're really reactive. It's like when something happens, especially in a greenhouse, it's how do you react and how do you react in the right light? Some people will kind of panic over the wrong things in some cases and get fixated on this really minute detail that's actually not going to negatively impact the crop. But meanwhile, something traumatic is happening over here and they're losing sight of it. Yeah. And that's why, uh, you know, communication from the different levels is key. I'm not in every single aisle touching every single plant. My gardeners are. So I need them to understand what they're looking at so they can communicate that to their leads and supervisors so that they can decide that's not something worth worrying about or that's something that's out of my purview or out of my you know depth and I need to elevate that to Zach. And then I come in and I can say, guys, don't worry about it. Or, okay, thank you for bringing this great catch. Let's, you know, focus some resources on it, whatever scenario that might be. Yeah. Walk me through like a, like a typical day for you. Like what, like what does that kind of sure. your, your physical mental checklist look like as a director of operations at a facility like this? Yeah. So, um, I have really good people running each department underneath me and they come in ahead of me and make sure everything's set up. I come in and I'll do my rounds and I'll hit every single department and I'll check in, making sure they're on task for the day. If they have certain questions about pro prioritization, and as far as in the clone room, are we cloning on this or this, or would you rather have us transplant this first? Something like that. Um, those little kinds of details that can get knocked out, um, as well as, you know, putting out any, any fires that pop up and dealing with also like HR issues. Right. So the, the first hour of the day is really just, um, getting the lay of the land every day. Um, even though a lot of times things aren't changing from day to day. And then from there, it's just kind of tackling whatever issue is most pressing. So recently. Uh, we've been having issues with our sensor settings on our uh, light depth and shade cloth. So we have different temperatures that deploy, you know, different um, parts of our infrastructure that help keep the environment stable. And it's been acting wonky and not responding to certain commands or not operating how it should. So that's when I go in to our operating system, which is GrowLink, and dig in and make sure there's no conflicting rules and things like that. Um, making sure that the sensors are all calibrated and in the correct position. We've, we had a, one in veg where someone uh, had the sensor bonking into his head while he was doing a transplant. So he took the sensor and put it on the tray above him next to the plants where we couldn't see it. And it, we're getting all these crazy readings and things are reacting like weird. microclimate. Exactly. Yeah. And so, cause it's, it's just trapped in there. It's not reading the ambient environment. So um, that was when we were like scratching our heads and then we go and like physically check the sensor. But yeah, basically just making sure that every department is set up for success, whether that is resolving HR conflicts or, um, you know, making long-term strategic plans around plant counts and schedules and all kinds of things that are shifting around here. And we're doing a lot of upgrades. So right now we are playing a lot of hopscotch with uh, having to plan around harvest where we want to uh, upgrade lights in a bay 
And then we obviously don't want a lot of work happening while the plants are growing or deprive them of light while they're growing. If, you know, things go wrong with the electrical upgrades while that's happening. So um, working closely with the facilities team to make sure all that kind of stuff is lined up, testing uh, misting systems, like lot, lots of brand new things that we have to then integrate into our settings and our uh, operating procedures. And so we're just kind of constantly evaluating that for best practices. It's interesting how I always compare like a greenhouse to like a sailboat and like an indoor facility to like a yacht or a barge, you know, like yeah. you, you're really out there in the elements in a, t- a traditional greenhouse. Now in your greenhouse, it's pretty much an indoor environment, but you still are having to manage these peak hot parts of the day where you have too much sun. Absolutely. Um, for someone who's not as familiar with the greenhouse, would you mind painting that picture for them as in, in layman's terms of kind of the infrastructure and kind of how thermal curtains work in terms of shade and, and, yeah, and absolutely. Black, blackout? So the basic premise of the greenhouse, the, the advantage of the greenhouse is having the natural sunlight, you know, the abundant light resource that we have, um, in addition to our supplementary artificial lighting. And we want to combine those and maximize light spectrums and light output on the plants. Now, again, in the summer, middle of August, we'll reach temperatures upwards of 115 plus degrees out here. And that's obviously not great for the plants. So we have to build in a lot of that indoor style infrastructure to manage those temperatures within the greenhouse. So what we have is a multi-layered system. Uh, We have the lights and the ability to dim them. We have a translucent uh, shade cloth that cuts out some of the light and therefore the heat from the sun. And then we have a blackout curtain, which we use during the night cycles regardless. But during the day, that'll close the lights on uh, at a dimmed capacity to help manage heat. And, you know, again, based on certain environmental settings and things like that. So like right now, it's like we're it's, it's August. So it's, you know, you're in peak pretty much heat. And we were talking earlier about some of the strategy because your greenhouse is predominantly a sealed greenhouse, which is also unique. You mentioned there's a little bit of an air gap at the a top, ridge vent, yep. but it's not, it's not actively really working per se, right? Yeah, it's, it's a passive uh, system. But then you have significant HVAC in here, which is water chilled, which is some of the most efficient HVAC system that you could set up. And then you're not bringing in a bunch of outside air to cool things either, like right. a traditional greenhouse. So... Yeah, it's 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 very much a hybrid, you know, new age greenhouse. Yeah, we've kind of just, you know, we approached it as strategically as possible. Like our all of our ducting is transparent, so that's not blocking out any of that light, things like that. You're running CO2 in here at incredible levels, which yes. is usually not common in a in a greenhouse. Right. So and then that's another thing that it allows us to do is uh maintain those CO2 levels um, you know, right where we need them and not have to we have a targeted system, so we don't have to fill the entire greenhouse space. We have um, lines that drop it right over the canopy and kind of t- target the canopy level. So it's, you know, very efficient that way as well. And, um, you know, it essentially is an indoor grow with the bonus of the sun, but then the sun brings all those challenges when you're in desert hot springs. Yeah. It's interesting, right? Cause you know, for your, the typical person listening, you're like, oh, you know, it's August, you're getting a bunch of sun. That's great. You, why would you be pulling a curtain, you know, and, and right now, on a hundred plus degree day, let's say, what is that curtain strategy look like? We were talking a little bit in the morning. Is it sure. more early light and later light or? Exactly. So uh, in the morning we have full sunlight. So no curtains are pulled. Yeah. Everything opens up, you know, six in the morning and uh, you get the, the sun is already out at that point, somewhat indirectly this time of year. 
And then we have our artificial lights pop on at the same time. And we have that full light spectrum throughout the entire morning. And then in the early afternoon, we'll generally cut the lights and just go on the sunlight alone. And that's been a pretty good strategy for us where we don't have to have the shade and light depth closing and opening constantly, which puts wear and tear on the system. That's been a strategy that's worked to kind of keep things uniform. But at the same time, there are times where the heat is just so intense that we end up just closing the blackout and leaving the lights on at a slightly dim capacity. And that can be in the middle of the day. And that's generally, um, yeah, the afternoon between like one and four or so. And then around four o'clock, the sun goes behind the mountains back here, the San Jacinto Mountains. And after four, we pop the lights back on until the end of the light cycle. It's pretty incredible, right? Like it's not what I think typical people would think of, of how to operate a greenhouse, but that's... Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, I have I have some experience in full season outdoor hoop houses. And in general, in this industry, it's all about adaptation. So yeah, would it be nice to have an indoor setup where it's a reliable lights on, lights off, and you have one kind of even keel throughout the day for sure. But uh, the challenging and rewarding aspect is coming up against these issues and using your intellect and the intellect of the people you work with and your infrastructure to overcome those obstacles and design something that that works and is successful is, you know, rewarding. Yeah, a true sailor. Uh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, this is a vertical farming podcast. So people are probably like, well, we've been talking about a greenhouse a lot right. here. It is a single level greenhouse. Yes. Let's talk about the vertical components of the greenhouse. Absolutely. So the vertical components of the greenhouse are in the vegetative room and it is a three-tier? Yes. Uh, three-tiered system and it's a mobile system. And it also came into the mix after the fact. Yes. So can you tell the story about kind of how it started and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, absolutely. So again, we have uh, 22,000 square feet of flower canopy split into six bays. Each one of those takes anywhere from 1,300 to 1,800 plants. Uh, in the vegetative phase, depending on the size of the bay that those plants are going to and the number of tables. So when they were building this, we were walking through before we had any of the tables in. Uh, it was just kind of walls and they were getting the electrical built up. And they brought me to this room and said, here's the veg space. And I said, this is the veg space. They said, yeah, you get your eight tables and all that. And I said, you're not going to be able to keep your greenhouse full. You might as well you know, build walls in there and veg in place if you're going to do it like this, because, you know, you're not, you're, it's just underbuilt. Like this is a small room that we're standing in talking about this. Uh, and I knew at that point, the only solution was to go vertical. Because the room was physically undersized. Because the room was just, it, it was a closet essentially, you know, it just, it was smaller than some of the black market kind of small scale 20 lighters that I, you know, started on. So we, did so I, I basically just did the math of this is the amount of plants that we're going to have going out on this schedule. And if, you know, you have your six bays that we're harvesting out of every nine weeks, this is the turnover that we're going to need in order to get these batches in this physical space. You need this much square feet, which means you're going to need three levels in here that are this long, all this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we've been, we, we put in the pip racks and it's been very, very successful for us. And maintaining our schedules and keeping our plants happy. Yeah, it's incredible in the design phase, if all the right people aren't at the table and doing all the right math um, and talking about plant spacing and um, also leaving flexibility too, because some cultivars you may want to switch up the density on. 
who knows how you'll do things two, three, four, five years from now. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, as I'm sure, you know, anytime you operate a new facility, the first two, three plus cycles up to a year are just understanding what you the got. facility itself. And, you know, especially in our greenhouse environment and the extremes between summer and winter temperatures and, and the sunlight that we get those different times of year, it's, you know, it's a big learning curve. So uh, fortunately we had some experiences in this area and on a smaller scale to kind of get our sea legs under us. So by the time we're operating here that we have a lot of those kinds of speed bumps ground down already. And you're also utilizing the vertical air solutions in veg on every single tier. And you really operate, it's a greenhouse by all definition, but you're really treating it like an indoor room. The blackout curtains are almost 100%. Full. Yeah, for the, for the veg, especially um, with how tight things are in that space and the height of the racks, you're only getting, if we were to open the lid, you're only getting light where the aisles open, but you're adding all that heat load. So it's just that more, much more stress on the system with very little benefit. You know, again, I'd like, I'd love to get more light on them and get them to, to stretch a little, but you know, it just doesn't make sense as far as maintaining the environment. And, you know, with the, with the pip racks, we know everything is going to be very controlled, you know, like you said, the indoor environment, and that kind of takes a lot of that element out of it because we've, before we built our propagation area, we were buying third-party clones and sometimes even teens. And they were coming from, you know, essentially just sunlight only greenhouses or very limited supplementary light. And you could see when they would pack the plants together and let them stretch for that little bit of light that was in there. And they'd come in and would be like, well, this have two nodes on it and it's 18 inches tall. What am I supposed to do with this? Yeah, not, not any kind of strength to them because they're supporting each other. So all those kinds of uh, negative aspects that we're trying to get away from that um, having that tiered system allows us to kind of avoid. California is hands down. I mean, it is the most unique, um, iconic um, state when it comes to cannabis. And it has rules that other states just don't have. Like a lot of places can't sell a teen. I mean, our, you can sell a ready to flower plant here. I can't, I, last time I read the regs, they were talking about like measuring pistol diameter. Like you could sell a plant that was two weeks into flower essentially at one point in California. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I try to avoid all those kinds of, uh, I, I let someone else worry about all these kinds of regulatory detail. It's just got such a unique, rich history of compared to everywhere else. And, and the, obviously the genetics seem to really just, I mean, California sets the tone for the rest of the country and the rest of the world's genetics, it seems at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the market's been thriving here for a long time, many decades before it was legal. Tell me, I mean, California has been setting the tone for the world's genetics um, for a long time. Tell me about some of the genetics that you're growing here and um, some of the stuff that you're really excited about. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the market down here loves its purple strains. And, uh, you know, we obviously have to listen to what the market wants at the same time, uh, balancing that with what works in our environment. And again, things that, that we like and find unique. So we're not just putting out what everybody else is putting out from all the same companies. So um, we're always um, seed hunting and pheno hunting, things like that. And we're trying to work strategically with partners in the area um, that have their you know pulse on what the market wants, as well as um, what they have available, maybe uniquely out of tissue culture and things like that. So right now we have a lot of gelato crosses. We have a lemon cherry gelato 
um, that we're growing for the first time that looks really promising. Another one called the soap that is just knocking everyone's socks off. And then we have, you know, some classic kind of California flavors, OG Kush. Uh, we recently had a Chem and Tahoe OG cross, very gassy, very green. Um, but, you know, again, things that are kind of traditional California flavors to a certain extent are things that made, you know, uh, California well known for those kinds of genetics. And then, you know, again, popping a lot of stuff from seed. Um, uh, we have some XJ crosses, first class funk crosses, things like that, um, that I think maybe aren't as widely available. Um, that, yeah, that can kind of stand out a little bit on the market. Nice. Where can people find your products? Uh, well, we do a lot of wholesale for white labels. So, uh, Rove, who owns the license and owns the building, uh, will eventually put out a flower product under its own brand. They'll also use a lot of the byproduct in their cartridges, uh, and their featured farm products. And then, uh, the rest of it is going to dispensaries and other kinds of, uh, retailers locally in LA and Palm Springs. What's the state of the market right now in California? I mean, it's 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 a little rough out there. Yeah, I mean, it's price. been in a lull for a while. And a little bit rough might be a, like saying it gently. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, uh, relative to what, right? So like relative to 20 years ago, relative to 10 years ago, relative to five years ago. Uh, but it's been in a dip, you know. Again, I, I kind of try and stay out of like the financial side of things and we have a sales team for all that, but... At the same time, you know, it, it affects what we do here and it affects the strains we choose to grow and the volume we choose to grow certain strains and things like that. And the market down here is just mad for purple and candy smelling strains. Um, so again, we try and find, you know, what do we have that's unique? Uh, we have a proprietary strain called Bubble Burst that smells like bubble gum. And, and everyone that smells it is just, I've never smelled anything like this. Yeah, I'm trying to think what the, the old bubble gum was like originally, I think out of Indiana, it was like an Indiana bubble gum. Yeah, uh, that's the classic one. Yep. Um, I'm not sure if that's in the genetics or not, but um, it definitely stands out and is super dark purple and it fits. What does the future hold for you guys? You know, knowing the state of the market and things, it sounds like you guys are actually expanding potentially. Yeah, absolutely. That's, uh, that's awesome, by the way. Um, yeah, we're, we're expanding, you know, fortunately at a time for us, um, where a lot of other places are contracting, even, uh, we are, you know, just looking to add, uh, new facilities and, uh, new styles of growing. And, you know, there's all, there's so many new technologies out there. We want to see how we can incorporate that into these new spaces, you know, forever building new partnerships and looking for new strains and things that work here, uh, might not work in these new facilities and things that work there might not work here. So. Um, being able to have that diversity is, you know, pretty key for us. That's awesome. Well, thank you for your time today. I can hear the cultivation team's ready to get in here and get lunch. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to get out of here. They've, they've been working hard all day, but thanks again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, likewise. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks, brother. Thanks for listening to Cultivation Elevated. Full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources mentioned are available at pithorticulture.com forward slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cultivation elevated. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.